Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Rebencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. This past week was heavy with science-related news from the national park system. There was a study suggesting that glaciers in the Teton Range of western Wyoming didn't vanish during the early Holocene warming trend, but rather hibernated under layers of rocks and soil brought down by slides. And in New Mexico, in the lava tubes of El Malpais National Monument, researchers believe cave ice in those tubes helped ancestral Puebloans survive during droughts. But the most read story of the past week had to do with research into why giant sequoias in Sequoia, Kings Canyon, and Yosemite National Parks died between 2014 and 2019. Other stories we shared on The Traveler included one on how to spend three days in Saguaro National Park in Arizona, and another that the Trump administration is moving forward to issue oil leasing rights for the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. You can find those and other stories about national parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, we're taking a look at some of the crowding issues that national park managers are struggling to address. But this one at Gulf Islands National Seashore in Florida is a bit more unusual than many others. You might have heard about Crab Island, Florida. It's a lively spot within the national seashore that attracts throngs of partiers, personal watercraft, and businesses that sell everything from frozen bananas to hot-boiled peanuts. What's wrong with that? Well, this island really is just a submerged sandbar, and it serves as a vital nursery area for Gulf of Mexico fisheries and has been identified as a critical resource in the national seashore. This area, with its dozens of unauthorized floating food vendors, bars, and large moored structures, has been, for the most part, unregulated and unmanaged over the past decade or so due to jurisdiction complexities between the Park Service, the state of Florida, Okaloosa County, and Elgin Air Force Base. So, to determine an appropriate level of commercial activity in this area and its relation to the severe safety and environmental problems occurring there now, the National Park Service has begun developing a commercial services strategy that will provide a guide to regulating and managing the area. Travelers Lynn Riddick reached out to Park Superintendent Dan Brown to discuss the early stages of strategy development, including the collection of public input from various commercial stakeholders. Western National Parks Association is a nonprofit education partner of the National Park Service. WNPA supports parks across the West, developing products, services, and programs that enhance the visitor experience, understanding, and appreciation of national parks. Learn more at WNPA.org. We all aspire to leave a legacy of good, right? One way or the other, our parks and public lands are all of our legacies. Join Wild Tributes for the Parks community with apparel that pays tribute to where legacy roams. Together, we can and will make a difference for the parks. Join us at wildtribute.com. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. 
You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. There's no other way to say it. Crab Island is a party place. The thigh-high, deep, crystal-clear turquoise waters and the snow-white sands underfoot draw thousands of people, boats, and commercial ventures throughout the year. Take a shot. Yeah, a they... shot of what? what you want? But has the party gotten too big? Is it too crowded and too commercialized? With me to talk about how those issues are being addressed through the development of a commercial services strategy is Gulf Islands National Seashore Park Superintendent Dan Brown, checking in from his office in Gulf Breeze, Florida. Hi, Dan. Welcome to The Traveler. Good morning, Lynn. Good to talk with you. Well, I want to start by having you tell us a little bit about the Gulf Islands National Seashore. Where is it exactly and what does it encompass? Gulf Islands National Seashore is our country's largest national seashore. It extends for 160 miles from on the east end near Destin, Florida. Uh, skips over Alabama, uh, but then goes nearly to the Mississippi-Louisiana border. Uh, westernmost uh, island in the seashore is Cat Island, Mississippi. So we're 160 miles end to end, and we're one of the uh, top 10 most heavily visited national park units in the country. We typically have about 6 million visitors every year. So we're a pretty busy place. The National Seashore is no stranger to catastrophe. It was severely impacted by hurricanes in 2004 and 2005, the Deepwater Horizon oil spill in 2010, and now you're recovering from Hurricanes Zeta and Sally. How extensive was the damage this time, Dan, and how are recovery and repairs going? Uh, well, we were hit pretty hard by uh, both Sally in Florida and Zeta in Mississippi. Uh, in comparison with the 2004-2005 hurricane season, uh, it was considerably less impacting. We had Hurricane Ivan uh, in, in Florida in 2004 and then Katrina in uh, uh, Mississippi in 2005. 2005 also brought other storms in Florida, um, Arlene, Cindy, and, and Dennis. So our, our facilities back in 2004 and 2005 were either completely uh, destroyed or severely uh, uh, damaged. Uh, this go-round, we've kind of dodged the bullet for uh, a good 15 years with only minor uh, storm impacts uh, over that time period. Hurricane Sally hit us pretty, pretty directly and um, uh, probably looking at about uh, $4.5 million worth of damage just in the Florida side of the park. I uh, don't have those numbers yet for the Mississippi side from Hurricane Zeta. What's part of the cleanup plan? What do you need to do there? Well, for visitor access, uh, especially in Florida, um, uh, the, the thing that's uh, most immediately impacted are our road systems. Uh, the roads are built right on the barrier islands, Santa Rosa Island, which is made up 100% of sand, uh, which moves and gets washed out anytime there's storm surge that overwashes the island. And that causes the asphalt to collapse. And uh, so we did have uh, considerable road damage to our two uh, primary access roads, Highway 399, uh, also referred to as J. Earl Bowden Way, uh, which is between the two communities, beach communities of Pensacola Beach and Navarre Beach, and then our Fort Pickens Road. Uh, so both of those roads are still closed. Uh, we're hoping to uh, make some temporary repairs to get those roads back open shortly, but the uh, long range repairs will be months away. 
I'd like to talk about the unique area of the National Seashore called Crab Island. And then I want to ask you about the issues that are prompting the development of a commercial services strategy. So first, tell us a little bit about Crab Island, where it's located, what it looks like, and how big of an area it is. Well, when people hear the name island mentioned, of course, they typically think of something above water level, an actual island. Uh, Back uh, in the 1960s, when the Army Corps of Engineers was creating and dredging the Intracoastal Waterway, they piled up a lot of their dredge material uh, in the uh, Choctahatchee Bay area for that section of the Intracoastal Waterway. And then they uh, maintained East Pass, an opening at the very east end of Santa Rosa Island, uh, just before you get to Destin. And uh, again, in maintaining that channel, they've also placed in the past uh, that dredge material and there, there were actually, I understand, a couple of above water level islands that were uh, called Crab Island. And uh, back in 1973, Hurricane Eloise came along and overwashed those uh, very uh, low lying islands and made them submerged sandbars. So what we know today uh, as Crab Island is actually a very, very large submerged sandbar. The water depths there, of course, are are tide dependent, uh, but the water can be anywhere from knee deep when tide is out in some locations to uh, neck deep, uh, and it depends on where you are on that sandbar. How big of an area are we talking about when we talk about Crab Island? You know, I don't have uh, an acreage figure, uh, but it's uh, probably several hundred acres. How many boats and people would you estimate to be in the Crab Island area on a typical day during the summer? You know, I don't know that anybody's ever done a a freeze frame aerial photograph and sat there uh, and counted each individual boat. Uh, But there are uh, hundreds of boats, uh, probably somewhere between 500 to 1,000 boats. Uh, And each boat, of course, uh, has many occupants and uh, on a a typical recreation season warm uh, day a majority of those folks are standing in the water uh, next to their boat uh, on that sandbar. So 500 to 1,000 boats per day? During the recreation season and of course that'll fluctuate um, a little busier on weekends a little less busy during the week. Uh, The the area does does draw uh, tourism from uh, throughout the region, but it's also used by by local residents as well. So uh, folks that work Monday through Friday and have weekends off. So you you will see fluctuations and increased usage and visitation on the weekends. I want to break down the issues of Crab Island one by one and uh, have you offer your insight on each point. Death and severe injuries. Uh, Crab Island is located, this submerged sandbar is located immediately adjacent to East Pass, which is the only outlet from Choctahatchee Bay into the Gulf of Mexico. And so when the tide uh, is going out from the bay into the Gulf of Mexico, it creates very strong currents. And if folks are standing on the east side of Crab Island closer to East Pass and they're in deeper waters, it's uh, relatively easy for people to get uh, swept off of their feet into the deep waters of uh, East Pass. And if uh, people are not prepared for that, not good swimmers, maybe inebriated, uh, it it, it can and has caused uh, drownings. Uh, There was one day back in 2001 where there were 
uh, eight drownings in a, in a single day. Some of the other issues out there that cause severe injuries, uh, potentially sometimes uh, fatalities, uh, uh, people like to dive off of their uh, boats and platforms and so forth uh, into the water. And whenever you have shallow, shallow water, it's, it's resulted in a lot of uh, uh, leg and knee injuries, spinal injuries, et cetera. And this year, as I understand it, you had three fatalities, one from a man diving into shallow water, one who drowned while snorkeling, and a third who got pulled in one of those outgoing currents you mentioned. Do you have any idea of how many people have passed away over the years? I'm not sure if anyone has uh, kept a cumulative total, uh, but what happened this year is, is uh, pretty common. So um, over the many years, uh, that those numbers have added up, obviously. How about damage to marine habitats and seagrasses? Well, one of our most uh, important and vital natural resources uh, in the national seashore and along the coast are our seagrass beds. Uh, almost all marine life, uh, both shellfish and, and uh, finfish, uh, spawn and go through their juvenile phases uh, within seagrass beds, so they're vitally important. Seagrass grows in, in uh, shallow uh, water areas and is easily impacted by things such as water pollution and sedimentation, uh, uh, et cetera. It needs to have pretty clear waters for sunlight to, to reach and for the, the uh, seagrasses to propagate and sustain themselves. They, they can be damaged not only by pollution and, and uh, siltation in the waters, but also by uh, boat prop scars. Uh, people uh, who are, are not really familiar with the area or how to operate their boat motor through a shallow water area, they can chew up uh, very badly damaged seagrass beds. Uh, our marine ecologists measured all of the prop scars within the National Seashore. And of course, uh, we're, we're in both Mississippi and Florida, 120,000 marine acres. And he measured 13 miles of prop scars and half of those where they're in the Crab Island area. Well, you also have anchor scars, vessel groundings, and the issues of boat turbidity. Certainly those, those things contribute to uh, impacting uh, seagrass beds. We also uh, have water quality issues there. Um, uh, people, when you have uh, hundreds and even thousands of people standing in the water, for long periods of day on hot days, drinking beverages, and there are no restroom facilities, uh, you can imagine um, the, the water quality uh, that exists there. It's, it's, it's not good. Yeah, it looks kind of like it might be one big urinal. Um, have you ever measured the water quality in any way? Uh, there has been some ongoing water quality testing there, and uh, we're in the process of, of uh, compiling that, that data. But uh, there are significant water quality issues in, in the Crab Island area. What about overwater refueling by commercial vessels? Um, well, over the past probably 10, 11 years, uh, a number of different types of uh, commercial operations have uh, arisen in the Crab Island area uh, unauthorized. And uh, that has included a very large floating structures uh, floating barges, floating platforms, some uh, 1,500 square feet and, and even larger. And uh, they uh, have maintained restaurants and so forth. And to provide the necessary power for their equipment and facilities, uh, they operate generators and 
Uh, they have to keep those generators going constantly, which means they have to refuel them. And that refueling takes place uh, right there on the water, over the water. Uh, they also have uh, boat rentals, jet ski rentals, and so forth. And those vessels also have to be refueled. And, and so that refueling would oftentimes take place over the open waters. What about plastic, cans, and trash in general? Well, it's an open water area, so there, uh, there are, it's no infrastructure, no uh, permanent facilities, uh, land-based type facilities, so no, no trash cans. Uh, people obviously get out there by boat, so they uh, have the opportunity to dispose of trash within their boats, but uh, invariably some trash ends up uh, in the water and, and on the seafloor there. And then you've got a rash of miscellaneous issues, fights, disturbances, altercations, marine DUIs, boating and personal watercraft collisions and injuries, medical emergencies, boat fires, swimmer assists. So who polices and responds to these incidents and have they gotten uh, unmanageable? There are a number of different uh, state and local agencies and federal agencies that uh, respond as best uh, their resources allow uh, to the Crab Island area. Probably uh, the, the bulk of the workload has fallen on Okaloosa County Sheriff's Office. Interestingly, for the entire state of Florida, being as boat-oriented as it is, this particular area right around Crab Island has the second most uh, DUIs or boaters under the influence, BUIs, I guess, uh, than any other uh, location in the state of Florida. So it's it is uh, problematic from an enforcement standpoint, and uh, there are uh, literally hundreds and hundreds of incidents that they have to respond to during the recreation season every year, and, and you listed uh, a great number of them. Uh, uh, typically, uh, boating and water and warm temperatures and alcohol always seem to uh, go together in the public's uh, recreational experience, and uh, anytime you mix alcohol in with that, it, it causes additional problems. So. Uh, All of those uh, things that you listed are problems that have to be responded to. We have other law enforcement agencies. The National Park Service does have uh, law enforcement uh, rangers who do occasionally patrol there. Um, State of Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission has officers who will uh, patrol and respond to emergencies. And occasionally even the the Coast Guard, uh, there's a destined station there for the U.S. Coast Guard immediately adjacent to Crab Island, and uh, they will get involved, uh, typically not so much in law enforcement, but in in rescues and so forth. And occasionally, even the city of Destin uh, Fire Department has responded, even though it's it's, uh, just outside of their city limit and and beyond their uh, legal jurisdiction. They have also responded at times to emergencies. The Park Service is proposing to implement a commercial services strategy to better manage commercial operations in the Crab Island area. And to touch on what you were talking about, about some of these floating structures, and just to give our listeners an idea of the goods and services that can be found in Crab Island. Um, And I want everyone to keep in mind that these are all provided from boats or floating structures moored in two or three feet of water. So there are vendors who sell ice cream and smoothies, burgers, Mexican food, and pulled pork sandwiches. You can buy pool floats, beach toys, and t-shirts, There are floating stages for concerts, floating wrestling mats, like you said, jet ski and paddleboard rentals. There are water taxis, and until recently, there had been large inflatable water slides and playgrounds that I understand are mostly gone due to a county ordinance last year that required them to be removed between sunset and sunrise. 
And that was out of the question for some of these structures because they took as many as four days to set up. So tell me a little bit about the history of how commercial outfits began operating in this national seashore area. And what is the relationship of the Park Service and local and county governments in regulating and managing these services? Well, other than emergency response, uh, the area was largely unmanaged for a number of years, particularly in uh, regard to the commercial services. Uh, all of those commercial services that you mentioned, and, and in, in places, it's not in two feet of water. It, it's in much deeper water because, uh, again, that water depth varies across uh, the Crab Island sandbar area and with tidal fluctuations. Uh, but all of those uh, until recently were unauthorized and contrary to federal law and regulation, not, not permitted, and yet, yet they occurred. Uh, uh, they started appearing uh, probably in about 2009. I, haven't, I arrived here in the summer of 2010 as superintendent, so it, uh, it was uh, in, uh, some of it was happening before I, I arrived. And uh, it is a shared jurisdiction area, uh, the, the uh, Ownership and jurisdiction is very complex in, in that area. So all of the um, affected agencies really struggled with uh, exactly how to, how to properly respond to management issues. Uh, at that location, the submerged lands are owned uh, by the state of Florida. Uh, the adjoining uplands are part of Eglin Air Force Base. Crab Island falls within Okaloosa County, and when Congress uh, passed the enabling legislation that established Gulf Islands National Seashore, uh, that legislation uh, specifically mentioned uh, the surrounding waters of the islands within the, the National Seashore and uh, mentioned the, uh, an accompanying boundary map uh, with, uh, as part of that legislation. And so they drew uh, in that part of the park, uh, the park's water boundary, as the southern edge of the intracoastal waterway and the very western boundary of the maintained portion of East Pass. So all of Crab Island uh, uh, that is uh, used by the public falls within the National Seashore. And uh, even though uh, uh, there is a mix of ownership of submerged lands and uplands, uh, when Congress uh, creates a national park area and draws the boundary, especially uh, for water areas, Federal laws and regulations do apply on the water surface and water columns. So it's been a challenge to sort through all of that. Uh, starting in about 2014, uh, all of the different entities, uh, uh, federal, state, and local, began meeting on a regular basis to, to try to sort through it and figure it out. And uh, turned out that the, uh, the state agency, Department of Environmental Protection, has delegated authority to manage the submerged lands but that uh, delegation did not include uh, issuing permits for use of the state submerged lands for uh, floating activities that had no upland interest. In other words, all of these floating restaurants that were sputting down into the state submerged lands. So the state actually had to pass a, a, a state statute, um, uh, 327.60, that authorized local governments, such as Okaloosa County in this case, to pass uh, county ordinances to manage those floating structures uh, that were interfacing with the state submerged lands. So it's been a, a real partnership effort. Um, the National Park Service has been working hand in hand with both the state and county and, and other folks like the Eglin Air Force Base and, and U.S. Coast Guard and so forth. It is a shared jurisdiction area and, and it's been very challenging, which is why it's taken 
why things got out of hands uh, before we could uh, quickly respond to them. And I invite listeners who are curious and have never seen this part of Florida to go online and do a search of Crab Island. You can find lots of videos on YouTube and lots of photos to just give you a sense of how this looks like a giant spring break. Probably a good description, a giant spring break. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of boats and people standing in the water, beverage in hand. And uh, at one time, it, it may have been more family oriented and some will claim that uh, it still is, but it's not promoted that way. Uh, and I think that's probably an apt description. And it's certainly contrary to the, uh, the intent of how uh, the National Seashore is managed. We are a unit of the National Park System and no different than uh, Yellowstone, Yosemite or Grand Canyon. Uh, our planning documents and policies uh, are there to provide uh, what people come to expect in visiting a national park, uh, a national park experience. And, and that's not what has existed there at the Crab Island area. Do you know of any other um, parts of the National Seashore in other parts of the country that have something similar like this happening there? Well, within Gulf Islands National Seashore, uh, there are a couple other locations that do tend to draw large concentrations of, of boaters. Uh, those areas have not yet spawned uh, associated commercial activities, uh, uh, although uh, folks have, have attempted to, and, and we've been able to head it off at other areas before it got started. But Crab Island, the horse got kind of got out of the barn before uh, we could get the gate closed. So we're having to circle back now and go through the, the planning efforts that normally would take place in advance of any commercial activities uh, being authorized. Uh, in terms of other national park areas, yeah, anytime you have uh, large water areas that are close, especially to urban areas, there's a potential for large concentrations and gatherings of boats. I know Biscayne uh, National Park uh, had a, a Columbus Day gathering that had similar types of issues and problems, not so much with commercial ventures, but uh, just gatherings of boats and lots of uh, mixing of alcohol and so forth. So it's not real common in the National Park Service because most of our, our parks tend to be more land-based, but we do have some water-based areas. I'm Lynn Riddick, and I'm speaking with Dan Brown of the Gulf Islands National Seashore. After this short break, we'll talk about what goes into the commercial services strategy. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at BRPFoundation.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization 
that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It is an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. I'm Lynn Riddick and I'm back with Dan Brown, Superintendent of the Gulf Islands National Seashore. Dan, would you explain exactly what a commercial services strategy is? Well, typically, uh, national park areas will develop one of two types of uh, commercial planning documents, either a, a full-blown commercial services plan for an entire park, or sometimes for uh, a focused area of a park, uh, may develop a more concise planning document called a commercial services strategy. Uh, oftentimes, uh, strategies are more conceptual in nature uh, without the intent of implementation. In this case, the commercial services strategy for Crab Island is one that we will fully implement, which means it will need to be followed by uh, compliance with NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act. And we will uh, be completing an environmental assessment to accompany the document. A general management plan for the National Seashore was developed between 2004 and 2014. How must the commercial services strategy and determining the appropriate level of commercial activity tie into that? Well, our general management plan is our overarching uh, plan or strategy for how the, the seashore and its resources and faci uh, visitor facilities are to be uh, structured, planned, and, and implemented. And uh, so it's our overarching plan. And similar to uh, you know communities that uh, develop plans where they allow, uh, say, private dwellings in one area of the city and commercial act, uh, activities in another area, uh, uh, general management plans uh, zone park properties, uh, those areas within the park boundary for uh, different categories of, of use. Some areas are uh, uh, zoned for more diverse visitor activities and development, uh, things like campgrounds and picnic areas and roads and, and uh, some commercial activities and so forth. In the case of Gulf Islands National Seashore, all of the 120,000 acres of marine habitat that we have, uh, our waters, are fall within one of two zones, uh, either a seagrass bed zone, and in the, the general management plan, we refer to it abbreviated as GMP, just easier to say, um, we have uh, the GMP has definitions of, of uh, those zones, uh, the uh, desired visitor experience, uh, desired resource conditions, uh, the appropriate facilities and functions, and a seagrass bed zone uh, is there primarily to uh, protect and promote uh, healthy seagrass beds as a, a, a primary component of our, our uh, natural ecosystem here. Uh, the other zone is uh, natural settings with dispersed recreation. And uh, again, very, very uh, limited uh, uh, types of uh, facilities, probably just uh, promoting uh, uh, visitor access and uh, intending for people to have an opportunity to 
and get away from uh, crowded urban environment and enjoy the natural setting, the natural resources, and any gatherings would be uh, informal and, and smaller in, in, in group size. So all of our waters, all 120,000 acres, Mississippi and Florida combined, are in one of those two zones. That includes the Crab Island area. So once the commercial services strategy is developed, what are the implementation options? Um, at this point in the uh, planning process, the development of the plan, we've uh, come up with what we're uh, terming concepts. They are not full-blown alternatives yet. Uh, that uh, We get to that stage when we're actually uh, doing NEPA compliance and doing the environmental assessment. We're not, we're not at that point yet. We haven't launched that. Uh, but we did share at, at some recent uh, virtual civic engagement meetings some concepts that we've we've come up with and three different concepts uh, uh, for the visitors uh, to respond to and provide us with input and feedback. And uh, what one of those concepts is to implement the, the commercial services strategy that would include uh, potentially issuing uh, one of two types of uh, permitting instruments uh, for commercial services. And, and we do have commercial services throughout our park waters. Uh, we have uh, concessions contracts to provide ferry service, uh, both over in Mississippi, out to Ship Island, and in Florida within Pensacola Bay. And then we issue uh, a kind of a lower level permitting instrument called a commercial use authorization. And um, there, there are several distinguishing factors between those two uh, instruments. Part of it is, is the amount of revenue that's generated. Generally, concessions contracts uh, uh, generate uh, more than $25,000 a year within the park. And commercial use authorizations are for uh, types of services that generate less than $25,000 uh, a year within the park. But we have uh, probably 50 or more um, to abbreviate it, CUAs, commercial use authorizations that we issue annually throughout the park for things such as land-to-land -land water taxis, a lot of those over in Mississippi because our islands over there are between seven and 11 miles from the mainland. Charter fishing, uh, guided snorkeling tours, guided kayaking and pa uh, paddleboard tours, uh, dolphin cruises, scuba lessons, uh, types of things that you, uh, act, water based activities that you uh, would expect to find that nature of activity within a national park uh, to help people understand, appreciate, and enjoy the park and its natural resources more fully. Yeah, I wanted to ask you more about the commercial uh, use authorizations because, as I understand it, the Park Service, Destin, and Okaloosa County officials had kind of been setting the stage for possible commercial reductions in Crab Island for the past couple of seasons with the issuing of temporary commercial use authorizations to island vendors. So how many reductions happened at that point and what can you say the public response was? Well, as uh, all of the different entities, state, local, and federal, uh, met and finally kind of figured out the way we collectively needed to approach this, our Washington office, uh, National Park Service, Washington, D.C. office uh, for commercial services, told us that probably the best way to initiate the commercial planning process was to gather data about what is currently existing out there, uh, albeit unauthorized, uh, contrary to federal law and regulation. Uh, and they uh, suggested that the best way to do that 
would be to issue uh, commercial use authorization or CUA permits as a data a means of data gathering. In other words, uh, in issuing these, we made it clear uh, to the people we, uh, to the businesses we were issuing them to, that it in no way was indicating that uh, this was an authorization that would continue into the future. Uh, it was simply a means of documenting who was out there, who was operating, or what types of services they were providing, uh, what their revenue was, and so forth. We needed all of that information in order to proceed with the commercial services planning process. So uh, issuing those CUAs was the first step in the planning process, and it was simply a means of, of data gathering. CUAs are issued annually, so they, they have to be considered for reissuance on an annual basis. The Okaloosa County, uh, under the, the state statute that I had mentioned earlier, passed their own county ordinance uh, to manage. Initially, uh, in 2019, it was to manage the, the larger floating structures and they revised it for the 2020 season to be a little bit more expansive and a little bit more restrictive. Uh, one of the, the, the safety issues out there was that these floating structures uh, were left in place 24 seven for the, the length of the recreation season, which extends for about six months, which means they were out there at night in and near uh, navigation uh, channels and uh, unlighted in, in many cases and were navigation hazards. And so one of the uh, steps that the county implemented was to, through their ordinance, uh, require that uh, any vessels or structures be removed uh, daily from sunset to sunrise. And that in and of itself uh, made it impractical or you know, maybe impossible for some of the types of vendors to operate because they simply could not set up on a daily basis and move their structures in place. So as I understand, in 2019, there were about 20 commercial vessels and 10 floating structures. And then this summer, that number was reduced to two floating structures and 13 commercial vessels uh, who were issued permits. Is that correct? I cannot address the uh, licenses, which is what the county refers to their uh, issuing documents. Uh, they call it a license. And I can't address how many licenses that the, the county issued, um, but it should probably closely parallel the number of CUAs that we issued. And it's my understanding we issued 29 CUAs and we didn't differentiate between whether they were mobile vessel that motored around uh, bending uh, boat to boat, or whether they were a stationary floating structure, our, our CUAs were one uh, one type of document for all. I, I think the county distinguished between the, the size and type of a vessel for their fee structure, but they could better answer that. I see. Federal regulations governing the Park Service say that to be eligible to operate within national park boundaries, commercial services must be considered necessary and appropriate. Can you give us some examples of what constitutes necessary and appropriate services? You mentioned ferry shuttles. I wonder how many services at Crab Island would be considered necessary and appropriate. Well, the, our, our management of commercial services in national parks are dictated by several things. Number one, the 1998 National Park Service Concessions Management Improvement Act uh, that Congress passed. Uh, back in 1998, and it's within that act that it talks about uh, commercial services, the larger um, commercial services that would be managed under contract having to be both necessary and appropriate, and then other types of commercial services, um, smaller services, uh, 
that would be authorized through a CUA, commercial use authorization permit, uh, having to be at least appropriate. But that is all spelled out in, in that act that Congress passed. And then uh, implementation regulations are contained in Title 36 of the Code of Federal Regulations, Part 51. And then further documents that we rely on are the National Park Service management policies and then our, our park-specific uh, GMP or general management plan. But to authorize any type of commercial service in a national park, uh, there has to first be a determination that it is consistent with the park's enabling legislation uh, that uh, Congress passed to establish the park. It has to be complementary to the park's mission and visitor service objectives. Uh, as you mentioned, it has to be, uh, for a, a, especially for concessions contract, uh, legally must be both necessary and appropriate for public use and enjoyment of the park. It must be for a type of service that is not already available uh, out, outside of park boundaries nearby. We're not going to compete with uh, adjacent businesses right outside the park. And it, it also cannot uh, cause unacceptable impacts to park resources. So those are some of the initial things that we have to use to evaluate um, a particular proposed commercial service. As you mentioned, you're currently in the process of collecting public input. You've hosted a couple of virtual civic engagement meetings recently, as you mentioned, can you tell us how they went, who joined in, and what kind of comments and questions did you get? Well, we had pretty good attendance, really. Um, uh, uh, for the first meeting, I think we had 25 people or so, 26 people. The second meeting, I think we had 14. And um, uh, we did give a PowerPoint presentation that explained much of what we're talking about on this program today to give some background information. Uh, about commercial services planning in, in national parks and at, here at Gulf Islands for Crab Island. And uh, then there was a, a question and answer uh, period where they could post written questions online and then we would respond uh, verbally. So that's how the meeting itself went. And I, I suspect by the nature of the questions that the vast majority of the attendees were commercial vendors who are concerned about uh, how this planning effort uh, uh, will potentially impact their operations, although there were others who were obviously concerned citizens uh, who were asking questions about uh, impacts to resources. So there were a variety of questions, uh, many of them very similar to the questions that you're asking today. So you're in the first phase of the planning process, which is defining the purpose and development of preliminary alternatives. Describe how the rest of the plan will work and what your timetable for completion is. Well, we're doing uh, a lot of data gathering uh, uh, to include things like uh, water quality, uh, seagrass mapping and impacts. Uh, we're gathering uh, input from the public through those civic engagement uh, meetings. Uh, we've developed some initial concepts uh, for presentation to the public uh, to get response from. And uh, we are, are looking at the necessary and appropriate criteria that Congress uh, requires uh, national parks to, to look at and to define what that means and how it will be applied under our general management plan document for Gulf Islands National Seashore. You know, I think in, in responding to one of your other questions, I talked about the, the types of commercial services that we already authorize uh, in park waters throughout the park. And those same types of activities um, uh, potentially could, could apply to any of our park waters. Uh, things like land-to-land uh, -land water taxis, charter fishing, snorkeling, guided snorkeling, scuba lessons, uh, guided kayaking and paddleboard 
lessons, uh, dolphin cruises, uh, things like that. So those are the types of commercial services that you would expect to find in a water-based uh, national park area. And we already author- authorize those in, in other parts of the park. Do you have any thoughts about what you personally would like to see happen at Crab Island? Well, my job is to help shepherd the, uh, the planning process and to listen to the public and to make sure that our planning efforts adhere to law, regulation, and policy. So, uh, you know, personally, I guess I'm, I'm held accountable for making sure that uh, we're following those laws and, and regulation policy. And what has been happening out there is, has not been authorized and is contrary to law, regulation, and policy. So we're in the, the planning process to address that. I guess I had started by talking about the different concepts. And the first one would uh, potentially authorize some commercial activities under the um, uh, where we land on our commercial services strategy. Uh, the, the second concept that we presented for the uh, civic engagement meetings would not authorize any commercial uh, activities at Crab Island, largely because of safety issues and water quality issues and resource impact issues, because all of those things have to be met in, in order to consider uh, authorizing uh, commercial activities. And then the third uh, concept that we presented was kind of a no action uh, status quo prior to 2019, uh, where everything went and nothing was authorized and everything that was out there was illegal. So we use that as kind of a, a measuring point. That's not an indication that that's where we're gonna land by any means, but we're always required in our planning documents to consider a, a status quo, no action alternative. We're uh, uh, proceeding on a pace uh, to have this planning effort completed by spring, uh, by March of 2021, which is about the same time period that uh, our recreation season starts. Spring break is not one week here. Uh, uh, Different school systems have spring break at different times. So it starts in March and carries into April. So uh, things start getting busier then. And then things really start picking up as it gets warmer in, in May, June, July. And uh, start slowing down mid-August when school goes back to session, but uh, um, really about a six-month season, March through maybe October. Um, so we hope to have this rolled out, uh, ready for implementation uh, in March. Dan Brown, we'll look forward to hearing more about this issue and how the Park Service will go forward in addressing the commercial challenges of Crab Island. Uh, thank you for your time, and please keep us posted. Thank you very much, Lynn. Um, I appreciate being able to share on this today. Crab Island, of course, is not the only destination at Gulf Island's National Seashore. This seashore sprawls across more than 138,000 acres in Florida and neighboring Mississippi. It takes in offshore islands, including a wilderness island, sparkling white sand beaches, historic military fortifications, mainland bayous, nature trails, and campgrounds. With so much to see and experience, it's nice to have a guide, in addition to living and breathing park rangers, of course, to help you navigate this outdoor playground. Fortunately, the National Park Service just released an app for Gulf Islands National Seashore, and it's a fairly robust app at that. With it, you can navigate where you are in the National Seashore and where you want to go. You don't even need cell service for that aspect to perform. Before you head to the park, simply download the park map and content with it and it will be ready to use once you get there. Within this content, you'll find self-guided tours to places like Blackbird Marsh Trail, Fort Pickens, and the Dune Nature Trail. 
You can keep your own list of favorite places and topics in Gulf Islands National Seashore on the app and create a personal collage of photos from your visits to the seashore. Additionally, there are audio descriptions attached to locations mentioned in the app. What was disappointing, and maybe this was simply operator failure on my initial trip through the app, was there was no specific page that took you to wildlife you might see at Gulf Islands National Seashore. Using the search function, I did find information on alligators and a general overview of wildlife you might encounter, but it'd be nice to have a dedicated section of the app that explores nature at Gulf Islands, both terrestrial and marine, including a bird list. That said, this is a nice app to add to your collection of National Park apps. It's free and can be found in the Apple App Store as well as on Google Play. That's our show. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we'll be sitting down with Frederick Swanson, a Salt Lake City historian whose latest book looks at the history of Utah's national parks and monuments. To say it's an interesting history is an understatement. Indeed, it's one that's still evolving today. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast series is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.